you want to get out your sermon outline so that you can follow along. Lots been going on as Dave just uh, led us in prayer. We have lots of uh, change ahead and uh, lots of good things. Um, I encourage you to keep um, praying that way. We have more change coming, programs, places, people, all sorts of things over the next two, three years. And none of that will go well if we're not uh, praying for those things. So I encourage you to um, follow Dave's lead in uh, praying for uh, all the initiatives that we set out when we uh, started our campaign. Um, and we've seen that. A couple people have asked, how come we've had so many new people this year? And I think some of that has been because we stepped out in faith with the campaign and asked God to do some things where we couldn't see the results in advance. And uh, when we exercise faith, God answers. And uh, so we have uh, seen lots of folks come, and we're glad you're here. Uh, now it's time uh, to go to God's Word, so let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the Scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for building this church. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, uh, we know that we need ears to hear and minds to understand uh, the things that you have authored. So we ask that you would apply them to us, proving in us that your word is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. For this, we need your grace and your spirit, and we need them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently read a humorous story uh, in Reader's Digest about a new substitute teacher. It says this substitute teacher had been instructed by school officials not to let students leave the classrooms except for the most dire emergencies. And so our first morning, uh, pretty much right from the start, uh, she had the seventh grader shriek in the middle of the class, oh no, and run up to her desk and start pleading, I have to run down to room 102 and tell my brother to eat peanut butter when he goes home for lunch today. And sub said, surely what your brother eats for lunch is not that important. She said, oh no, Tommy has the first lunch and I have the last. And if I don't tell him uh, before he gets home to eat peanut butter, he'll eat the roast beef. And mom's saving that for dad's dinner. So then when dad gets home, he'll say that mom has to quit her new job because she didn't have time to get his dinner ready again. And mom will call him a chauvinist pig and tell him to eat out. And he'll come home really late. And mom will say she wants a divorce and sleep at grandma's again. The sub let her go. <laughs> so we may chuckle at that story, but family conflict is no laughing matter. And sadly, there's a lot of Christian families uh, that have become war zones. Uh, the Christian home is supposed to be a place where God's love and kindness are put into practice on a daily basis, but all too often... Homes are filled with selfishness and bickering and anger and abusive speech and sometimes even physical violence. And we can't give lip service, but we must actually obey the principles of God's word if we want our families and our homes to be a place where there's peace and not war. Now, family conflict's not a new phenomenon. As we've seen as we've gone through Genesis, uh, it's been with the human race since the fall. And our text this morning is going to show us a portrait of a family at war. 
It's startling when we realize that this is the family through which God promised to bless all nations, the family through which the Savior would come. And yet a battle is raging in this family. And it's sort of a bleak picture, but the theme of the grace of God does run through it. Now, Jacob isn't living in submission to the Lord at this time, and his wives, plural, are thoroughly self-centered. And yet God blessed Jacob with 11 sons and one daughter. The 12th son doesn't come later till Genesis 35. And that's going to form the basis uh, for the nation, which will number over 2 million in Moses' day. So perhaps Moses included this story to humble the nation by showing them that God's blessing on them is totally due to God's grace and not to anything in them or anything in their ancestors. Because this story is a case study of a family at war. And it's a powerful commentary on the problems of polygamy. While in the Bible God tolerated polygamy, it's not his intent, nor is it ever presented favorably in the Bible. While most Americans aren't polygamists, um, if you are, there's some elders that would like to talk with you, uh, because we have our wives consecutively, not all at once. This story reveals that family members violate God's principles and pay the consequences. And I'm not going to move straight through the text this morning like I normally do, but I'm going to take it by characters. And we're going to start with Leah. We learned a lot about Leah last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon on our website or listen to it again. But one of the things that's clear when it comes to Leah is that she's frustrated but faithful. Frustrated but faithful. That's the first blank there in your outline. So we're going to start in chapter 29 with verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now we're going to jump ahead to chapter 30, verse 17. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, just a few weeks ago. And it says there, and he brought, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So from Abraham to Jacob, the ongoing fulfillment of this promise seemed to come one or two at a time. But now that's all about to change. Jacob would be the father of 12 
sons, and at least one daughter. And God said the world would be blessed through this family. Now, a blessing as great and as highly anticipated as this one should be ushered in with trumpets, but it actually comes with whining and bitterness. Six of Jacob's sons are born to Leah, which was a great honor and blessing for her, but Leah is the wife that Jacob didn't want. And in spite of his kindness to her, not even her outstanding ability to produce sons could win Jacob's favor. So she's a frustrated woman. And Rachel, Jacob's true love, is beautiful and honored and favored. But she isn't able to have children. And although she has Jacob's love, she's jealous of her sister's fruitfulness and complains bitterly to her husband, give me children or I shall die. And that plea is going to come back to haunt her later on. Leah and Rachel are constantly competing with each other. And their rivalry must have made the tents of the patriarch uh, places of turmoil and trial. And undoubtedly, this left its mark on the children, as we'll see later. And it's hard not to pity Leah. In fact, we should say more than that. It's proper to pity Leah because the passage tells us that even God took pity on her by opening her womb and giving her lots of children. Leah has been guilty of conspiring with her father to deceive Jacob on the night of their marriage. She had been substituted for Rachel, whom Jacob was expecting, and it seems there's little chance that that could have been done without her willing participation. And she probably loved Jacob. She wanted to be married to him. And desires like these have turned her away from righteousness, and now she's trapped in a polygamous marriage where she's going to learn the high cost of deception. It's true that Jacob probably realized the hand of God was in his experiences, and he learns to be kind to Leah. But his fondness for Leah springs from mercy. It doesn't come from the passion that a husband should have for his wife. And it's hard to find a situation exactly like this today, since our society is not supposed to be polygamous. But I think Leah is an accurate portrayal of a lot of frustrated women. Many wives are neglected and even despised by their husbands. Sometimes they're innocent of wrongdoing, but more often, like Leah, they've acted wrongly, and so now they bear this burden of guilt as well as the brunt of criticism. Maybe they acted falsely, pretending to be something they weren't. And if this describes any of you, I hope it leads you to do what Leah's misery led her to do and seems to have driven her to depend on the Lord. Psalm 27 uh, says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And Leah could have testified, Though my husband neglects me, though he loves Rachel and only tolerates me, yet the Lord will take me in. And in this situation, the Lord apparent, or, uh, Leah apparently turned to the Lord, who pitied her and blessed her with sons. It seems to indicate that Leah is or was about to become the more spiritual of the two. She doesn't have the advantage about being uh, taught about the true God by her parents, but seems to have learned that from Jacob. And so she sees her plight in relationship to the Lord. And when she became pregnant and gave birth to her first son, she named him Reuben, which means see a son. But she explains the birth by saying, verse 32, 
because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. All of the names of these kids refer to the mother's situation in life. For the most part, they don't refer to the children. And so this is, we'll see often it's a play on words where she says, see a son because the Lord has seen me. And then she's praying and we have the birth of the second son who's Simeon and his name uh, means hearing. Comes from the Hebrew word Shema. And it's explained in verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. From whom did God hear about Leah? Well, obviously from Leah herself. She's pouring out her heart to God, and God, who always hears the cry of the broken heart, is good to her. Then Leah's third son is born, and she calls him Levi, which means attached, because, verse 34, now this time my husband will be attached to me. But he didn't. He remained attached to Rachel. And then the fourth son is called Judah, which means praise. And by this time, Leah stopped seeing the birth of her sons as a means by which her husband's love could be gained, Instead, merely praise God for the birth of the children. Later on, when Leah would give birth to her sixth and last son, she would say, chapter 30, verse 20, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And this seemed to happen. Rachel remains Jacob's only true love, but he did honor Leah and treat her kindly. Now, Leah's is a bad situation, no matter how you think about it. And you have to notice, God doesn't completely change her situation. He gives her grace to live in a less than perfect situation. He multiplies her joy through childbirth. He gave her sons who had become the uh, fathers of the greatest of the Jewish tribes. Levi would become the father of the priestly line, and Judah would become the father of the kingly line, the Davidic line, through whom the Messiah would come. And so we have this introduction to Leah and her six sons. But then Genesis 30 brings Rachel back into the picture. And in spite of her favored position, in spite of being honored, in spite of being beautiful, she's just as bit as miserable as Leah is. In fact, she's probably more so because she's beautiful but barren. Beautiful but barren. We'll start with verse 1 and 2, then we'll jump down to verse 22. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jumping down to verse 22 very end of our passage. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. It appears that Rachel didn't have Leah's depth or spirituality. In that day, the ability to give birth to children, and sons in particular, is highly regarded, and the failure to do so is considered a sign of God's disfavor. Besides, in Rachel's case, there's the danger, the fear of losing Jacob's affection, which is now going over towards Leah, or so she thought. And these worries seem to haunt Rachel. So in spite of her beauty, she's driven to desperate acts out of fear and despair. 
And her first desperate act is this unfair demand on Jacob in verse 1. Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob gets mad. He's angered by her demand. But he speaks the truth in verse 2. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob knew that issues of life and death are with God. He could love Rachel, but the granting of children came from God, and her demands on Jacob were actually rebellion against God. And this is Rachel's real problem. We don't want to read too much into the passage, but since we're told that Rachel is jealous, is envious of her less attractive sister, I think we're no doubt right in uh, thinking of her as just a little bit more than a bit spoiled and perhaps resentful uh, of God if everything doesn't turn out precisely the way she wants it to. And Rachel's proud of her beauty. Very possibly she lorded it over her sister a great deal. And when Jacob offered to work seven years to get her, her prestige would have gone up throughout the the village. And then after Leah had been substituted uh, for her on her wedding night, and Jacob agreed to work another seven years to have Rachel, then her vanity would have become unbearable. God is using her uh, childlessness to humble her and to force personal growth and to force her to turn to the Lord. And I think it would be good if some women who are less favored outwardly could see that God's also concerned about those who are beautiful. The plain girls envy the beautiful ones, but the beautiful ones have problems of their own. And God doesn't look down on them as you or I might. The Bible says in 1 Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that cuts both ways. But when you're not getting what you want, be it children or affection, people are prone to resort to desperate measures. Desperate measures, and now the strange story gets even weirder. Going Starting at verse 3. Then she said, Here is my ser- servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. Reuben, remember, is the oldest son. Found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, 
Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) Rachel's second desperate act is to try to have children by giving her servant, Bilhah, to Jacob. It's really sad. I mean, it's hard to imagine that Rachel hadn't been told of a very similar situation in the life of Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, when Sarah had given her servant, Hagar, to Abraham. And that didn't work out so well. But even if she hadn't known about it, Jacob, who certainly knew about it, should have warned her about it on the spot. He should have said, this is something that we don't do. I know it's permitted under the laws of our time, but matters like this are not of God, and we're simply going to pray and ask God to give you children. When my grandfather took Hagar, it produced all kinds of problems. But Jacob doesn't do that. Or if he did, he simply gave in to Rachel's persistence. Clearly, she's not trusting God, and like Sarah, she moved to take matters into her own hands. Now, Bilhah has two sons by Jacob. Notice Bilhah doesn't get to name her sons. Rachel does. And the first Rachel named Dan, which means judged or vindicated. Now, this isn't nearly as spiritual a name as the names Leah had given her sons. And then Rachel called Bilhah's son Dan because she believed that God has vindicated her position. Actually, God's done nothing of the sort. Rachel is willfully sinning and dragging God's name in in an attempt to rationalize, justify, uh, prove that she's still in the will of God. And Rachel's true motives come out when the second son, uh, Bilhah's son, is named. Rachel called him Neftali, which means my struggle. Rachel is struggling with Leah, and the additional baby is just another weapon in her arsenal. She's really aiming um, at jabbing Leah with this name. Sadly, there's no game so low that more than one cannot play. And so now Leah responds as Rachel did. As Rachel had given her servant to Jacob as a proxy wife or a concubine, Leah now reasons there's nothing stopping her from doing the same thing. So when she married Jacob, her father gave her Zilpah to be a servant, just as he had given Bilhah to Rachel. And so now Leah gives Zilpah to Jacob. It's starting to sound like a poker game where each side's trying to raise the ante. I bid one wife. I bid one wife and four children. I'll match your wife, raise you a concubine, and the concubine's two children. I'll raise you another concubine and two more children. That makes one wife, one concubine, and six children against one wife, one concubine, and two children. The whole thing is just getting annoying and sort of repulsive. And it's supposed to. It's what happens when jealousy replaces love. And it looks like it's taking its toll on Leah. Although she started out well in calling on God, the naming of her first uh, four sons, uh, she seems to have moved to lower ground with the naming of the last two. She named Zilpah's first son Gad, meaning good fortune, and her second son Asher, which means blessed or happy. And there's no more reference to God. She's just playing the numbers game now, and she's forgotten that happiness comes from the Lord. And then what follows, you know, just when you think things have gotten totally bizarre, it gets worse. Reuben, who's probably four or five years old by this time, 
is out in the fields during the wheat harvest and finds some mandrake plants, which he brings home to his mother Leah. Mandrake's a, a small plant which uh, has a root that can be pinched into the shape of a man, hence the name, and it has a fruit that can be eaten. And from thousand years up until relatively modern times, it was regarded as an inducer of fertility. And so this false belief explains the interest that the sisters show in Reuben's discovery. So Rachel begs Leah for the mandrakes, verse 14. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Obviously, she thought they would help her uh, overcome her inability to bear children. So she appeals to her sister for help despite their rivalry. At this point, it seems that Leah is getting pretty bitter. And the rivalry finally just bursts out into the open. And she shoots back, verse 15, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? It has to be frustration that leads her to say uh, such a thing. Because actually it was Leah who took away Jacob from Rachel on what was supposed to be Rachel's wedding night. And so her retort is so ludicrous that Rachel uh, rightly could have uh, replied, what do you mean I took your husband? It was you who stole mine. But Rachel doesn't do this. We don't know why. Maybe she's not very smart, as some in my high school class thought. Um, Maybe she's humbled. But anyway, she agrees to send Jacob to Leah that night in return for what she hoped would cure her childlessness. But in fact, it ends another way, because after Jacob returns to Leah, she conceives again and gives birth to a son she named Issachar, which means reward, and then to another son named Zebulon, which means honor. And then finally, at the very end of our passage, Rachel conceives. She's gone through a difficult time. This has humbled her. But now we're told, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. Apparently, Rachel had been trying to manage things herself and finally gave up and began to cry out to God. And as a result, God takes mercy on her and gives her the son whose life is described in the final chapters of Genesis. Now, in the birth of each of these last three sons, because the 12th son, Benjamin, is going to be born later in Genesis 35. But now God is acknowledged as the source where she says, verse 23, God has taken away my reproach. So what do we do with all this? I mean, it's just one odd story after the other. To apply this, I'm going to bring Jacob forward in time. If he lived today and came to me for counsel, what would I tell him? You know, I often tell the session that there's a chapter missing from the book of church order. I don't know if I've told you that, but I'm convinced there's a chapter missing, which basically lets me take someone out back and kick his butt. But I haven't found that chapter yet. But I think it's sorely needed. Maybe I'll recommend that. But if he came to me, and I didn't have that chapter, what would I tell him? Well, I'm sure if he came in, I'd say, Jacob, what's the problem? And he'd answer... Problem is my wives. They're constantly bickering. All I want is peace and quiet when I get home after a hard day's work, and I don't want to listen to, she said this to me, and I said this to her. I just want some peace and quiet. 
And Rachel is upset every month when she's not pregnant, and she blames me for it. Can you believe that? As if I'm God. And Leah's always complaining that I don't love her like Rachel. Give me a break. We've had six sons and a daughter together. What does she want? Well, if Jacob was a member of this church, this is what I'd hope that I would tell him. Counseling Jacob. First of all, the Bible clearly teaches that the husband is the head of the wife in Ephesians 5, which means he's given authority under God in the family. That concept's under attack in our day, and biblical authority doesn't mean barking orders like a sergeant. In biblical authority, the one in authority is always under the authority of Christ and accountable to him. God grants authority for one main reason, the blessing and protection of those under authority, to use authority for personal advantages to abuse it. Thus, the main concept of authority is not power, it's responsibility. And God holds the husband accountable for taking the responsibility of leading his family under God's authority. So I'm going to shoot straight with you, Jacob. You are way too passive. You're blaming your wives for problems which, for which God holds you accountable. You're taking the path of least resistance, doing whatever your wives want, uh, just to buy a moment's peace. Take Rachel's inability to conceive. Why don't you take the initiative to pray for her, as your father Isaac did when your mother had the same problem? When Rachel gave you Bilhah, her maid, you went along with it. Why didn't you say, this plan got my grandfather Abraham into a lot of trouble? We shouldn't do it. You did the same when Leah offered her maid. And when Leah hired you for the night, why didn't you call a family meeting to deal with the conflict? As your wives named each son to chalk up a memorial for her victory over the other, why didn't you put a stop to it? You just let things drift as you were tossed from wife to wife at their bidding. I know you wanted peace, but a husband's, uh, a husband's passivity buys peace at the price of problems. Passivity buys peace at the price of problems. And Jacob, I know you're thinking, what could I do? I was caught in the middle. And I understand that every man wants some peace and quiet when he gets home from work. But part of the job of a leader is to resolve problems. You can't hide out at work and hope the problems go away uh, at home. And you're just going to come home to a frustrated, angry wife who's been dealing with the problems all by herself. And she's going to unload on you, and you'll either try to pacify her to get her off your back or get angry and fight back. Either way, you're not facing your responsibility to solve the problems God's way. And when Rachel saw her sister having children, she grew jealous. She's afraid she was going to lose your love. So she blamed you by saying, give me children or I shall die. A plea that God will answer on both parts. Rather than being understanding and leading her to seek the Lord, you responded in anger and blamed her. But you need to see why Rachel was barren. God gave Leah children and withheld them from Rachel because you neglected Leah. You've been blaming others for problems which stem from your own passivity. You're saying it's not my fault. It's Rachel's fault or God's fault, but I don't have anything to do with it. But Jacob, if there's a problem in your family, it's your problem. You're responsible to deal with it, and you better not shrug it off by blaming your wife. Your anger and blame are a cover 
for your passivity. I know you had no way of knowing that the reason for Rachel's barrenness was your poor treatment of Leah. And I knew you can't undo the past where you were tricked into marrying two wives. But entering into a polygamous marriage without seeking God's will reflects spiritual passivity as well. And it's your passivity that got you into this mess, and it's brought you momentary peace at the price of long-term problems. But before you run off and start barking orders at your family, you need to understand that the opposite of being passive is not being aggressive. It's active biblical love. Because a husband's job description is to love his wife as Christ sacrificially loved the church. See, because I brought him forward in time, I can now use the New Testament. It's obvious that Leah wants your love. She tried to gain it by giving you sons. That didn't work. A wife shouldn't need to earn her husband's love any more than the church has to earn Christ's love. Perhaps Leah's not as beautiful as Rachel, and you feel like you were tricked into marrying her, but the fact is you're married to her. And the command is clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church isn't always lovely, but thank God Christ loves her anyway. And your job is to love your wife with a view to her becoming all that God wants her to be. God's grace towards us is the model for how we should treat one another in our families. Now that's a condensed version of what I would have told Jacob. But now suppose Jacob's wives came to me. So I asked them again, what seems to be the problem? Besides the fact that you're both married to the same guy. They say, the problem is that passive excuse for a husband that we have. The man won't deal with problems. He goes to work early, comes home late, wants dinner, peace, quiet, and to make lots of babies. He won't listen when we try to tell him how we feel. He gets angry and defensive. We don't feel loved. And if any of these problems are going to get solved, we have to do it ourselves. He won't do anything. And here again, in condensed form, if I could bring them forward in time is what I would tell hopefully tell Jacob's wives. And that's both of you are trying to manipulate Jacob into doing what you think he ought to be doing. But neither of you is facing up to your responsibility to submit to him and model godliness before him. And as long as you're manipulating, you're not submitting, either to him or the Lord. A wife's manipulation buys short-term results and long-term frustration. Short-term results and long-term frustration. Leah, you joined in your wife's scheme to deceive Jacob. I realize you loved Jacob and wanted to be married to him, and you were obeying your father and went along with the cultural custom. But you're also being manipulative. You got what you wanted. You're married to Jacob, but it's not what you hoped for, so you're frustrated. You don't have the love and intimacy that you thought your manipulation would bring. They're like a lot of wives in our culture who are starved for the love they want from their husbands. And some of them manipulated their husbands into marriage by going to bed with them before the wedding. They thought the intimacy of sex before marriage would secure them a husband. And it did, but he's not the guy they bargained for. He's wrapped up with his job. He's emotionally distanced. So you thought having children would help. But he just lets you take care of raising the kids, and now he doesn't understand when you're always so tired. And Rachel, 
You are being manipulative and giving your maid to Jacob to bear children on your behalf, and you thought you won some sort of great victory over your sister. But you learned it was a hollow victory. It didn't get you what you wanted, although it got short-term results. Both of you need to stop the manipulation and submit to your husband as to the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about my needs? I need to feel loved. How are my needs going to be met? And a wife has to focus on pleasing God, not on having her needs met by marriage or children. I know that's a hard statement. I think it's a very common situation. If you focus on meeting your needs, even by the good things God gives, such as marriage and children, you're going to come up empty because your focus is on the wrong thing. In order to gain your life, you'll lose it. But instead, if you'll focus on living a manner pleasing to God, God himself will meet your deepest needs. Your desperate attempts to get your needs met through your husband's love are counterproductive. If anything, it'll change, uh, will change your husband. It's going to be when he sees a quiet spirit of contentment, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So focus on pleasing God. As sisters, you got to deal with your rivalry and call it what it is, which is sin. God's command is clear. You have to love one another, not compete with one another. And you're not loving your children when you use them to try to gain your husband's love. If you both learn to focus on pleasing God, you won't have to use manipulation to gain your husband's love, and you won't have to try to use your kids to fulfill your own needs. Instead, you can love them for who you are. And that's what I would tell Jacob's wives. Because ultimately, what's this all about? It's all about idolatry. That's the last blank there. Idolatry. Both Leah and Rachel view God as a means to winning what was really important in their life, and that's Jacob's affection. Neither of them viewed God as the one who in and of himself supplies all meaning to life. And that's the essence of idolatry. Someone or something other than the living God is at the center of your life. And whatever we must have instead of, or as well as, the God of the Bible is our idol. For you, it may be health or comfort or personal peace and affluence or control, the affection of someone else, or any of a thousand and one things. Whatever it is, it's an idol. And the pain of unsatisfied idolatry is a messenger of God to reveal our own hearts to us. I mean, as long as we get what we want and our idol is smiling on us, it's easy to be oblivious to the power that our idol has gained over us. As long as we can provide the daily sacrifices that our hungry idols require, we can go on our merry way. But when we can't make the payments they demand, Things get ugly. When we're no longer beautiful or healthy or wealthy, we miss a rung on the career ladder. Then our idols curse us. And we experience a range of negative emotions like fear and anger and despair. And the strength and power of those negative emotions reveal just how much a hold these idols have on us. You want to see me get angry? Mess with my books. 
There's lots of other stuff I have you can take and I'll be sad, but I'll just replace it. Mess with my books, I'm hiring a hitman. For a lot of women, it's their kitchen. Mess with their kitchen, you're dead where you stand. Whatever loss crushes your soul is an idol. And I'm no exception, and neither are you. And we see Leah idolizing the love of her husband, which she doesn't have. And when she finally turns to the Lord, he blesses her immensely. But a little later, she actually falls right back into the idolatry in the naming of her last son. Even those idols we think are dead and buried have a way of coming back to haunt us over and over again. Like vampires, idols often refuse to stay dead. But for you and me, and Leah and Rachel, and Jacob and his sons, the ultimate answer is found in another name. The ultimate offspring of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. How does this dysfunctional family, and they are dysfunctional, how do they become so well known that today we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How does this dysfunctional family become so prominent that these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They become the sons through which whom the world is forever changed. And according to Revelation 21, upon entering into the kingdom of God, you and I will see their names inscribed on one of the 12 gates. And we'll get to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what we call grace. If I could just state the obvious, it's all grace. This family doesn't deserve to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into human history. This family doesn't deserve to walk into heaven and see the names of their sons written on the gates of the heavenly city. None of these people has the right to stand before God and claim that they're good. What we see is they're frail, mortal, wicked, foolish, perverted, petty, bitter, regular folk, just like you and me. They're not superheroes. They don't get red capes. They don't move faster. They don't lift things that are heavy. They don't think better. They don't act any wiser than any of us. They're incredibly frail, mortal, regular people. They're not our heroes. They're our examples. And there are examples of grace. There are examples of what God can do for someone who's very sinful if indeed he should embrace them and they should embrace him. Because you don't want to put your faith in Abraham. And you don't want to put your faith in Isaac. And you certainly don't want to put your faith in Jacob. You want to put your faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his name is Jesus. And he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he saves us from ourselves. And he bestows on us dignity and honor and blessing that we don't deserve and wouldn't be given to us apart from his grace. And he'll even use our sins and errors and folly and perversion and evil like Leah and Rachel and Jacob to work out good things on the earth and in our lives because he's a good God. We don't go to God and say, give me sons or I die. <coughs> and we don't do that because Jesus went to God and said, you have given me sons and daughters and for them I'll die. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Oh Lord, our Lord, you showed amazing amounts of grace to Leah and Rachel and Jacob. You showed more grace to Jacob. And we so much want you to show that grace to us. 
We battle fear just as much as Leah did. And we battle envy just as much as Rachel did. And we battle anger just as much as Jacob did. And still you come to us and still you're showing grace to us, the undeserving. Lord, as always, thank you that no one's beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that Jesus was willing to die for us, for your sons and daughters. For we pray in the name of our sacrificial Savior, Jesus, who gave himself up for us and today lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.